Good morning to you. If you have your Bibles, uh, you might open them to the book of Colossians, last chapter. Yeah, this is part 19 in our series, and we are wrapping things up today, uh, looking at the um, last set of verses, beginning in verse 10. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive in. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this week, and I know uh, for so many of us, just so many things happening, um, so many ways you're working, so many ways you're, you're moving, uh, and certainly at the same time, challenges that we face, uh, both as uh, believers in this world and those just walking through this world like, like everyone else experiencing the kind of things people experience, but, but with you, with your spirit, with, with the comfort you provide. But as we bring all that with us this morning, um, I believe you have something for us here. And so I, I pray that you will help us to kind of take the things that might distract us this morning and, and set them aside and to listen to you and to your word to us. I believe it's important and I believe it's what we need for today. And so I pray for these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 So I've shared with you before how um, I was actually born and raised in Southern California, um, Orange County, LA area. And, uh, and then I moved up here when uh, I came to go to graduate school to seminary and I've just stayed up here ever since. I grew up in a little town, uh, it's called La Habra. I grew up there uh, through grade school and then lived in La Habra Heights after that. So pretty much all my time before I left for college was in La Habra. And being from La Habra, it's surrounded by, you know, bigger places like Fullerton and Whittier and that kind of stuff. Maybe you never heard of that either, but La Habra's like up in the north end of that. And uh, it's not really noted for anything in particular. And it's really weird to ever meet anyone um, who even knows about La Habra, much less would be from La Habra. But after I'd been at Gateway for a couple of years, uh, I was preaching one weekend, and I must have mentioned uh, where I was from. And afterwards, a guy came up to me, uh, who's part of the church, his name's Nate. And Nate says, so you're from La Havre? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I'm from La Havre. And you know how when you meet, so it, I mean, it'd be like if you were across the country and you met somebody from Washougal or, because everyone knows Washougal and, and, and Camas, but you know, you have this instant kinship with them. And so uh, Nate and I began to talk, you know, and he's like, did, where'd you go to junior high? And I'm like, I went to Starbucks junior high. He's like, yeah, I did too. And where'd you go to high school? And I'm like, I went to La Havre high school. He's like, I did too. And he was about uh, three, four years ahead of me. He's like, now when you went to the high school, was it still closed camp? at lunch and I'm like well, what was for the first couple of years and Nate was like that was me I did that right so I'm like what do you mean he's like I broke so many rules and all that stuff that they closed the campus uh, at lunchtime that was my legacy in La Habra so you know we started talking about what it was like to live in La Habra it had a very uh, a very distinct culture there um, and so you know we just had this instant camaraderie and Nate and I could talk about all sorts of things and there could be a bunch of people sitting around but nobody would know what we were talking about except us because we we're both from La Havre. When I was in high school, something similar to that happened. I became a Christian. And as a Christian, I began to discover something when I first came to Christ. And that was there were uh, Christians all around me, and I didn't necessarily know they were Christians. I had never been to church. I had never read the Bible. I didn't go to their Bible studies. I didn't hang out with them. But once I became a Christian, there started to be this thing, right, where I'd be at school at lunch, and, and I'd be talking with somebody, and then I'm a brand new Christian, so I'm not afraid at that point to say, you know, I'm like, hey, I just became a Christian. And they would say, I'm a Christian. And, you know, we'd start to talk and we'd find, we had like all of this really cool, I suddenly found all these connections with people, uh, people I had known, um, people I hadn't known. But nevertheless, all of a sudden, we were like brothers and sisters. We actually were through these, through these connections. And I started to develop these really deep friendships with people like Paul and, and Gary and Steve just because we were Christians, because of that connection that we had. We could talk about spiritual things that I couldn't talk about with other people. We had a shared view of reality, of sin, of self, of salvation, of, of the church, of the Bible, of what God was doing in the world. Now, there's a biblical world, uh, word for that, and it's the word koinonia. Koinonia uh, basically means a, a shared um, partnership with someone else. Christ became the basis for my relationships. It became uh, the basis for my friendships. Uh, when I got married, it was the basis of my, of my marriage, of my relationship with my kids and my friends to this day. But something I've noticed over the years, and I've been uh, here at Gateway for 29 years, so I've been able to kind of uh, track 
what happens with people. And what I could tell you is this. I've noticed that as we get older, our hearts change. None of our hearts stay the same. Our, Our hearts change. And I've noticed that hearts tend to go in one of two directions. They tend to become smaller or larger, but they rarely stay the same. Some hearts get smaller. That is, you notice as people get older, they tend to gravitate toward comfortable relationships and away from uncomfortable relationships. People who, as they get older, decide, you know, they they move away from people who vote differently, right? They'll say things like, I don't have time for that anymore, that nonsense. Or or maybe maybe they'll move away from people who live a different lifestyle or have different values or priorities or backgrounds. Right? Maybe it's what you watch for news. I get this a lot, right? There's, there's the Fox crowd, the CNN crowd. Boy, they don't hang out, have coffee together, any of that kind of stuff. It could be masks. It could be vaccines. Some people, their hearts get smaller. Some people, their hearts get bigger. Um, they have room for more people than they had before, and they have more room for different kinds of people as they get older. But you may have noticed, not everybody's heart gets bigger. Some hearts get smaller. Now in 1 John 1, 3, John is speaking and he says this. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. John says, we, just, we proclaim Jesus Christ in the gospel to you. So that, I love where, you go, where he goes here. He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. So we, we tell you the gospel, we tell you about Jesus, so that we can have fellowship together. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So in one verse, he explains some really interesting things in the underpinnings of our fellowship with one another. And that is that fellowship with the Godhead, fellowship with God who is, has fellowship with himself, we won't get into that today, um, is the foundation for our fellowship with other believers. And so the key to, to healthy earthly relationships is our relationship with God. Now, our passage today is at the end of Colossians. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to read this for you. We're going to read verses 10 through 18. It's the closing of the book. And as we close the book, it's basically Paul just saying, hey, I got a bunch of, I have some people with me, and they all want to say hi. So I'm going to put their names at the end of the book. And then we'd ask ourselves, why would these names be mentioned? Well, we'll talk about that. Verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. He says hi. He's, He's waving to you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, and if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. Now, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who in fact is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. That's a lot of territory that we're going to cover this morning, but I want to focus on something that we began to talk about last week. Now, Paul wrote this letter from prison. Uh, He wrote it to a church in in Colossae. He'd never been there, but he knew about them. He'd been praying for them, and he was looking for ways to bless them, to serve them from a distance, even though most of them He'd never met, but he knew they were connected in Christ. They had koinonia, they had shared fellowship. And so as he closes the letter, he sends greetings from six of his team members. He's like, they all, they say hi to you. And uh, so I want to talk about that this morning and, and what we can glean from that. So before we glean it, I want to talk for a minute about the six people that Paul sends greetings from. I have this in your notes. It's his, his fellowship team, and his team is made up that he talks about of six people, three Jews and three Gentiles, which is no small thing. Now, the first thing that he mentions is this. He talks about the the three Jews that are with him. In verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. That's one. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, is a second. We know him as John Mark. And Jesus, who is called 
justice. So let's look at these three guys really quickly because we don't really know a lot about them. The first member of the team that he mentions that he says, you know, kind of says, Aristarchus says hi to you. We're going to call him the fellow prisoner because, well, that's what Paul calls him. And we know a little bit about Aristarchus. We know um, if we go back in the book of Acts and we read about the mob scene that started up in Ephesus, we know that Aristarchus was there and he got swept up in, in, in the mob. We know that he w- had traveled with uh, Paul for a while and Paul calls him a fellow prisoner. So we don't know if that's literal or metaphorical. He he could have literally been in prison with Paul, maybe because of the ministry that he had with Paul for the same reasons that that Paul was in prison. It may be that it was metaphorical, that he wasn't in prison, but he might as well be in prison because he would stay with Paul wherever he was. So if Paul was in prison, Aristarchus would stay in town and go spend the days with Paul who was under house arrest and he would be with him. And so he was kind of, he was chained to Paul who's in chains. Either way, Paul says, this is a faithful companion of mine. That's Aristarchus. In contrast, we look at the next name on the list, which is uh, John Mark. We're going to call Mark or John Mark the the dropout, all right? So let me explain why that is. So there's a little background. Um, Back earlier in the book of Acts, uh, Paul and Barnabas were set aside to go out on a missionary journey. It was going to be the first of its kind. And they decided to take Mark or John Mark with them. So the team left Antioch and they began to travel. They ministered in Cyprus. And then uh, they got to Pamphylia. And when they got to Pamphylia, so they're, they're just kind of getting into this journey. John Mark says, that's it, I'm out. And he leaves. He just leaves them and he goes back to Jerusalem. We don't know exactly why John Mark left the team, um, but most theories say it was probably just too hard for him. Um, it, the conflict maybe he wasn't prepared for, uh, the, the, the travel that they would have, not knowing what's gonna happen the next day. Uh, they might end up in prison, they might not. And, and so he doesn't know, and it's just it's too hard for him. I saw a survey the other day, there's been a bunch of these surveys during the pandemic, Um, And it said that 60% of senior pastors that were surveyed report right now that they're considering quitting their job. 60%. Now, when I say considering, they're not necessarily writing up their, uh, you know, I'm out of here kind of thing, although I think some are. Um, But at least when they have coffee in the morning, they think about it, you know? Like, I like Home Depot. I I could work at Home Depot, you know, kind of. And when they ask people why, everyone pretty much gives the same answer this is too hard. This is not what I trained for. This is not what I signed up for. I don't, I know how to preach a word. I do not know how to get people to get along. People who argue and complain and gripe and divide over masks and vaccines and politics. And what's interesting is um, I spend time with some other senior pastors in the area. And the, the one thing that I've consistently heard from senior pastors who feel defeated is they feel like the churches they serve that can't get along, they feel like it's their fault. I hear this all the time, if I was only a better pastor, right? And I, my job is to tell them, uh, this ain't your fault, okay? <laughs> this is like, we could all do better jobs, but um, people make their choices. But, you know, sometimes, and I've heard people say, well, they're just all a bunch of whiners and they ought to get out of the job. But I understand where they're coming from. And I, I think it could be easy to think about John Mark this way too. Well, he's just kind of a wimp. Now, when Paul was going to plan a follow-up trip with Barnabas, they were going to go back on and retrace their steps of their missionary journey and go back to all the churches. Barnabas said, let's bring John Mark with us, right? And Paul was like, no way. I'm not doing that. And And I don't know why. Maybe Paul just felt like, there's too much on the line and I don't have time to babysit someone. And, you know, he, he, he dropped out the first time. He'll probably do it again. And so there's this kind of very famous separation that happens um, between Barnabas and Paul, who had just been best uh, friends, co-workers. Barnabas says, I'm not going to abandon John Mark. So he took John Mark and they went in one direction and Paul recruits Silas and they go in another direction. And now we have two missionary journeys taking place, but I kind of get both points of view. I, I I can understand where Paul's coming from. You know, and he's like, I just don't have time for this. This is too important. There's too much on the line. But I also definitely understand Barnabas, who would have said, you know, everybody need, people need a second chance. Nobody's perfect. Nobody gets it right the first time. And, you know, I don't want to give up on him. 
Well, this is John Mark the dropout. And then we have Jesus called Justice. So Jesus was a very common name in those days. So he kind of goes by his surname, which was Justice, which was also a very um, popular name as well. We don't know anything about this guy. Um, we don't really get any commentary except, you know, he has this name and he goes by this name. But I was thinking that it would probably be cool just to be mentioned in the Bible anyways, right? Like, wouldn't that, like, would you be like, would you be willing to have your name in there if there's no commentary? Yeah, sign me up, right? Like, you know, so Aristarchus and Epaphras and Bob. Like, I'd be like, that's great. We have a lot of good things to say about the, I have nothing to say about Bob, nothing bad. I could live with that, right? But that's, that's Jesus called justice. And then he lists three Gentiles. Um, the first one is Epaphras. I'm going to call Epaphras the, the wrestler again, because that's really what Paul calls him. Now, Epaphras has a little backstory. He was from Colossae, uh, the church where Paul was writing this letter to. At some point, we think he was in Ephesus. Uh, he gets exposed to Paul's preaching. He becomes a believer. Paul takes him in, disciples him. At some point, he goes back to his hometown and when he goes there, he tells everybody about Jesus and the gospel. And so people get saved, then they start a church in a home. And I think in a lot of ways, he's probably like their favorite son. He's the guy who brought the gospel, helped plant the church. Uh, but God gave him a vision that was bigger than Colossae. So at some point when he's with the church, he's like, I love you guys, I want to be here, but I feel like God's calling me to take the gospel to other towns and cities around us. And so I'm, I'm going to have to pack, pack my bags and I'm going to have to leave. And he goes, he shares the gospel, plants churches. And sometimes God does that, right? Sometimes God calls us to stay where we are. Sometimes God, God calls us to go out, out of our comfort zone, to, to other places, to other cultures. I've always found that, like, difficult. I don't mind when God, if God calls me to go to Nicaragua or somewhere, I, that's fine. I'll tell you what I don't like, I struggle with. I'm both excited about it, but I struggle with it, is when somebody from our congregation, who I know and I love, says one day, you know what, God's calling us to go to Indonesia or, you know, go to Germany or go to wherever. And I, I, I'm both excited for them and I'm always kind of sad because I hate to see people go. But, and, and that's probably a little what, of what's going on here. They, they loved Epaphras, he was one of them, but God gave him kind of a bigger vision. So he, he's traveling around the area and at some point, there's some heresy, there's some teaching that begins to happen in the Colossian church uh, some Gnosticism, some legalism, we've talked about that. And when Epaphras hears about it, he isn't quite prepared to deal with it, and he wants to help the church, so he goes and finds Paul and says, Paul, can you help me work this out? And he spends some time with Paul, and Paul describes him this way. Paul says, he's been with me for a while, and this is a guy who's always struggling on your behalf, and he does it through, through prayer. The word struggling is the Greek word agonizomai, just exactly what it sounds like. We get the English word agony. It says that when he prayed for them, it was like agonizing. And it tells us what he prayed for. He prayed for the will of God. And the will of God is a lot bigger than, you know, what should I wear today or what should I have for lunch? It's, this, is a, this is a, what is God doing in the world? What is God doing with the gospel, both here and all over the world? What is God's plan for the gospel? What is God's plan for the church? And what is God's will for each individual? and how they would be a part of that. So that's kind of what he's, he's struggling with. He's, he's praying that this church would understand the gospel work that God is doing all over the world and that they would understand their role in it. The whole strategy, if you will. That's Epaphras. And then we have Luke. I'm gonna call Luke the overachiever. Um, in verse 14, it says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. So this is the passage where we find out that Luke's a doctor. Uh, in all of the Gospel of Luke, we don't read that. And in the book of Acts, we don't read that. He was a doctor. Now, um, N.T. Wright, who uh, is kind of an expert with history during this time and, and first, in the first century, is a guy who isn't afraid to speculate about things. And one of the speculations that he has about Luke is interesting. He says, first of all, and this is just a fact of history, that at this time in the empire, most doctors are slaves. The overwhelming majority of doctors are slaves. And there's a reason for that. 
Um, if you were an average citizen, you couldn't afford the training that would be involved to be a doctor. If you were a rich person, you would never want to be a doctor because it just involved blood and disease and all that. But if you're a rich person, what you could do is, is get a slave who's really intelligent and pay to have them trained to be a doctor. And then you would have a family doctor and you could share that doctor with your relatives and friends and you could hire that doctor out to people and make some money at the same time. N.T. Wright speculates that the odds are that Luke, among other things, was a slave. Now, he was also beyond that, um, the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, in fact, at one point that was one book, and then because it's so ginormous, it was separated into two books. But this guy is an overachiever. He's a physician, he's a historian, he's a researcher, he's a writer, he's a missionary, He's an intellectual, he's a church planter, he's a devoted and loved uh, friend of, of Paul. This is Luke. And then we have one more team member, uh, Demas. And I'm gonna call Demas the deserter. Uh, Demas is the only one of the six for whom there's nothing. Like we don't even know what his nickname is. It's just, this is Demas. Now, a short time later, Demas would desert Paul. And the theory is, again, that Paul is already aware, aware maybe that Demas is sliding a little bit, but Demas says, say hi to the church, and so Paul is going to do that, but he's not going to say anything else about Demas for, for all sorts of obvious reasons. And that's Paul's team. Um, six people, uh, not exactly a dream team, not all of them superstars. We have a deserter and, and, and a dropout, uh, a fellow prisoner, someone you know, who's unknown, a wrestler in prayer, an overachiever. Uh, this is his team that he has that he mentions. And I want to give us uh, just kind of three closing takeaways from this book as we think about fellowship. Why mention these men? Well, I think there's a reason for it. And I want to pull out just a couple of things for you. And the first one, and the big one, is this. I think it teaches us, or it reminds us again, that fellowship is not natural. Fellowship is unnatural. Or we could say fellowship is supernatural. And it's really pointed out in this text. Paul's six teammates are made up of three Jews and three Gentiles. Again, uh, the Jews are, we have uh, Aristarchus, his fellow prisoner, and uh, John Mark and Jesus, who's called Justice. Now we know that Paul was a Jew and had an extensive Jewish background as a Pharisee. Uh, and we know that there are many Jewish believers at this point, but there are only three with Paul. Only three were part of his team, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. And then there are three Gentiles who are with him as he is in prison. There's Epaphras, there's Luke, and there's Demas. Now, the reason that this is so significant, and it can be lost on us in this culture, is that in that culture and in that day, those two groups of people did not associate with each other. They had different languages. They had different national and political loyalties. They had different religions, different cultures. They weren't just indifferent with one another. Scripture describes them as being hostile toward one another. And historians tell us that the only reason that they got along in the empire was because if they didn't, there was a threat of the sword from the government for causing problems. But they didn't hang out together. They didn't share meals together. And they didn't do ministry together. And they certainly didn't love one another together in the natural world. But as believers, we are called to unnatural fellowship. It's not natural, it's unnatural, it's, it's spiritual, it's supernatural. These men loved each other. These men served side by side. They sacrificed for each other. They worked towards a common goal. They had an uncommon unity. And that shouldn't surprise us. In fact, we can go back a little bit in the Gospels and when we look at the life of Jesus, we see it reflected everywhere. Right? Jesus was one who just did not put up with the typical barriers of that culture, which again might be lost on us today. But there were a lot of barriers in that culture that existed between people. We know that there was a strong um, uh, barrier between genders, between men and women in that culture. Rabbis were forbidden to greet women in public. Um, think about this. In fact, I was reading this week, some rabbis were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. 
And they were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because if they saw a woman coming the other way on a road, they would look away and sometimes they might trip on the road and fall and get what they called pious bruises (laughs) because they would not look at women. And then Jesus comes along and Jesus is uh, willing to talk with them and to minister to them and to take meals with them. In fact, we know that women were part of his uh, followers and his team. His uh, first post-resurrection appearance was to women. Jesus is one who reached across that typical barrier. Jesus is one who reached across religious barriers and, and talked with Samaritans. In fact, his followers were shocked that they could find Jesus talking with a woman who was a Samaritan. Why were they shocked? Because people didn't do that in that day. That was, that was not natural. Um, We know that Jesus was one who reached across political barriers. We know that he uh, reached out to poor people and to rich people, not just one or the other. He reached out to the powerful and the powerless, to social elites and social outcasts, not one or the other. He just broke down those barriers and talked to anyone who would listen to him and listen to the gospel. Jesus brings together not just people like me, And not just people unlike me, not just rich, not just poor, not just educated. He brings together everyone who has faith in him so that we are one family, so that we are are one people. And this was his plan for the church. We see it in his ministry. We see it in the early church in the book of Acts. Um, But it didn't come naturally for them. Some of you were here when we, uh, I think we took about 60 weeks to go through the book of Acts a few years ago. And if you were here back then, you might remember that there was a theme that just kept coming up again and again and again, and that was the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the Gentiles. They didn't get along. They couldn't get along. Gentiles would get saved and want to come in the church, and the Jews would be like, no, you can't do that. First, you need to become a Jew. First, you need to have a, an operation and change your diet and change all this. And there was, you know, and some of you told me after, you know, uh, five, six, 25, 40 weeks Some of you said, what was the deal with the Jews and the Gentiles? How many times does God have to tell them, no, I broke down the barriers, no, you're one. The answer is, I don't know, a lot, right? There's just a lot of that that happened. Gentiles were getting saved, Jews were not naturally letting them in. It makes sense, it's not a natural thing for that barrier just to fall down. It's an unnatural, it's a supernatural thing. But God persevered through the Holy Spirit, in his church. And when people wouldn't get along, God would press them. God would find a way to break down the barrier and to get them together. Paul's circle of fellowship included Jews and included Gentiles who were together for the sake of the gospel, who accepted each other and loved each other. I read a quote this week. I thought this was good. This guy said, it is impossible to hold racial prejudices in the heart and be spirit-filled. Such goes against everything Christ taught and teaches. When a Christian refuses fellowship with other healthy, spirit-filled believers, there can only be one conclusion. Something is wrong in his or her relationship to God. Now, that being said, the idea of believers being divided is not something unknown to us. And some people would argue that in the last couple of years, we've seen this in the church, maybe more than many of us have seen, at least in our lifetime. Believers who have divided over, say, political affiliation, who have decided they can no longer be in the same church, they can no longer take communion together, they can no longer acknowledge one another because they vote differently. It makes you wonder, is that how small the gospel is? Is that how weak the Holy Spirit of God is? That he can do a lot of things, but he can't transcend that. We know what this is like because we've experienced it in our day. Political division. Sometimes I see this with schooling choices. You, you, you send your kids where? Or you don't send your kids where, right? And people who decide, they divide up. They, they go to a church where they educate kids the way other people do. Or maybe people who divide by economic class or by education. And again, not to just beat this dead horse, but you know, there's masks, which I still hear people argue and debate about, and vaccines. For heaven's sake, it's a mask. It's like, you know, paper. This is the kind of thing that we let divide us. 
Here's what I have heard a lot from people over the last few years. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for people who wear masks or don't wear masks. I don't have time anymore for people who vote this way or don't do this. Okay, that's a small heart. That's a shrinking heart. That's the opposite of what God wants to do in our lives. Koinonia is different. It's not natural. We love each other, even people who are different than us. Here's the second takeaway that I want to point out here. And that is that fellowship requires risk. It's one of the things that you see when you understand the backstory of what's going on with Paul's team here. Again, in verse 10, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And here we go, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So again, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark uh, had been on a, a missionary trip, a missionary journey together, and Mark drops out at some point. So, so imagine, if you will, we're going to take a, a team to Nicaragua. So we do this every so often and actually had a talk the other day and I'm hoping we do this in the next year. So let's say we get a group of people together and, and we get all our training and we go down to Nicaragua and after about four days, imagine that somebody on the team says, it's too hot, I don't like the food, I don't like the smell, I don't like it, right? So I just booked a ticket and I'm going home, I got a cab coming and I'm out of here. Right, so we let them go home. The next year, we're putting a team together and they come back and say, hey, I want to go. I can imagine a few people that might be like, yeah, I don't know about that, right? Remember last year? Remember how you ditched us last year? Like, how do we know that's not going to happen again? This is kind of what happens with, uh, on a much bigger scale with Paul and Barnabas and John Mark. It causes this schism between Paul and Barnabas and, and Mark. And now it's about 12 years later, and we don't know what happened during that time, but now suddenly Mark and Paul are together. And they're ministering together. They're teammates together. We don't know exactly how that happened, but we know that this is where they are now. There's been at least some healing and, and reuniting and a partnership. Welcoming Mark back must have felt risky on Paul's part. Don't you think? I, how could he know that Mark could be trusted not to drop out again? The answer is he can't. He can't know that. There's no guarantee. In fact, if you've had, you know, a certain amount of relationships, you understand that no relationship necessarily comes with a guarantee. People make their choices. Now, years later, Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy. He said, Luke alone is with me. He's in prison. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me, uh, to me for ministry. Wow, every time I read that, a guy who was a dropout, Paul says, if just one guy could come, make it John Mark. That guy's useful. That guy's helpful. Please send that guy. They have reconciled, not just from a distance. They're together. They probably had to forgive each other. I would imagine John Mark had to forgive Paul for being so hard and difficult. And, and, and maybe, you know, Paul had to forgive John Mark for for ditching him on that trip. They may have had to overlook some differences and say, we're gonna have to agree to disagree on a few things and give some grace to each other. But every time I read that, it's, 2 Timothy 4.11 is so beautiful to me. There is a supernatural thing happening there. Now again, I say that because I'll, I'll tell you that in the, the 29 years that I have been here at Gateway, I would probably say that the number one discouraging thing, more discouraging than anything else to me, is when I see people who are really close friends, maybe they were related, maybe they did ministry together, who have some kind of conflict. Now, I'm okay with that because that happens. That happens in every relationship. But their response is to separate. Their response is to no longer associate. Uh, they will avoid each other. Uh, they won't come to the same, so this happens. Well, I, you know, I, I want to go to Gateway, but I'm afraid we might end up in the same worship service. I've had people over the years ask me this question. Hey, pastor, can you tell me when so-and-so, which service they come to? Because we're going to go to the other one. Do not do that to me. You're tempting me to sin when you do that. Because <laughs> I'm likely to send you to the other service <laughs> and to say, yeah, you should sit over in that corner, right? Knowing that's where they, because... This, I, nothing breaks my heart like this. And then they just stay there. And there's no healing. And there's no reconciliation. 
And there's no second chances. There's no koinonia. That is not the kind of fellowship and the kind of love that God calls the church to. It just is not. Everyone needs second chances. Everyone. None of us get things right the first time. We don't do it. And second chances can produce such amazing results. Think about this. Mark goes on to write the Gospel of Mark. In fact, isn't it amazing to think that two of the people on his team at this moment wrote half of the Gospels, Luke and Mark. And then there's Demas. Right? Sometime later, Paul writes of Demas, who was on his team, in 2 Timothy 4, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me, and he's gone to Thessalonica. It doesn't say, by the way, that he deserted the Lord, though he may have, but it's not what it says. It says he deserted Paul. And that must have been very difficult for Paul to watch. And relationships are messy, right? People sin. None of us are perfect. We all have areas of immaturity. People will hurt us. People will blow it. People will walk away. And there are no guarantees. Every relationship comes with risk. We must be open to that. We must not let the possibility of that close our hearts, make our hearts small. We must be willing to risk that. That's part of faith, that we trust God. If I, if I have an open heart, if I love people the way God calls me to, I'm gonna have to trust God, right? I'm gonna have to lean hard on God. That's what we do. It's risky, but we go there by faith. And here's the last thing that I wanna mention. And that is that fellowship is a struggle. Now, it probably sounds that I'm like, like I'm really down in fellowship. <laughs> like it's risky and it's a struggle. But I mean this in a good way. Again, look in verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of, of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So it says that he's worked hard. It, it literally means he's been in pain or distress because Epaphras has a big heart. He has a big heart. This is a guy who takes on the concerns and the problems of other people and he makes them his own. He's a big heart. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul has that kind of, kind of heart. He's speaking to the churches and he says, and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So he takes on all of their, their problems as his own. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and, and I'm not indignant? Paul says it's a struggle when you have an open heart. It's a struggle when you get so close to other believers that their struggles become yours, that their hurts become your hurts, that their problems become your problems. But I love what it says here. He says, but he has a great response. He prays for you. Because prayer can change things. But I love how it says that prayer is hard work. It says Epaphras entered into the hard work of prayer. He leaned into it. He made room in his heart for other people. I was thinking this week about that very thing, and I, I was thinking about my own prayer life, and I noticed something that I hadn't really thought about before. Um, when I get up in the morning and I get ready for my day, I just don't turn anything out. I just pray pray and then I get in my car and I drive to get some coffee and I pray the whole way until I get to the office. I just pray. And I noticed this week something I hadn't noticed before. There's a theme to those prayers in the morning. All I do in the morning is I just naturally, I've never really thought about it. I just pray for uh, people who are hurting, are struggling, are going through stuff. It's not uncommon for me to wake up in the morning and have two, three, four uh, texts or emails that say, Pastor, something happened to me last night or yesterday, can you pray? And so I'll pray for that stuff. And, and here's what I've noticed, and maybe you've noticed this too. Um, if somebody calls me and says, hey, I got a meeting today, can you pray for it? No problem. I'll pray for it. I've prayed for you before we're even off the phone. I'm praying for you. That's easy. If somebody calls and says, could you pray for a week? I can do that. But sometimes people say, can you pray for the next month? Or can you just pray indefinitely? Maybe it's going to be a year or, or two. And here's what I found. That's the stuff for me that's hard. That's when I begin to enter, kind of into wrestling. Um, because when I pray for somebody, um, and I do, there are people I do pray for every day, some I've been praying for because they've asked for it, like over a year ago, and they haven't asked me to stop, so I'm still praying for them. But after a while, I'm like, I feel like I pray the same thing every day. You ever do that? Almost the same words, and I don't want to do that. I don't, so now I'm kind of thinking, well, how should I pray? 
Should I pray for healing or not? Should I pray for changed circumstances or not? Should I pray that that person's changed or that? And I find myself wrestling. Do you ever do that? Oh no, how am I supposed to pray? I think that's what he's talking about, wrestling for this because their burdens become your burdens. Their struggles become yours. I want prayer to be fresh and, and meaningful. In Romans 12, 15, it says this, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So this is not acknowledge the emotions of others. This is share the emotions, share what they're going through, and that can be hard work. Again, it can be emotionally draining, right? Let me ask you this. Do you only have room in your heart for the easy relationships? Do you only have room in your heart for the comfortable relationships, for the people who aren't going to require too much work and time? If somebody came up and said, I'd love to be friends, and you knew in your mind, oh man, it was going to be a phone call every day and tears, and it's going to emotionally drain me. Are you like, yeah, sign me up, right? <laughs> I'm ready to go. Or you're like, oh no, that's too much sacrifice, too much time, too many of my resources. Most of the people, by the way, that Paul lists here, these six people, have never been to Colossae. They haven't been there, and they've never met the people in that church. But they knew they were part of the same family. The family of God. Part of the same, they, they shared koinonia. And they, they did it from a distance. So Paul says, Here, my team says hi. And I'm gonna send uh, a, a couple of them to go to you and be with you. And I'm gonna write a letter to support you. And we're gonna, we're gonna pray for, for you from over here. And I love how Paul reaches out to people, a lot of whom he's never met. But because of their connection, he's gonna love them and support them and be there for them. I say that to you, um, this is, uh, this is Pastor Joel, Don Brown, his wife, uh, Joy. And we go back a long way. I was uh, the youth pastor for both of them. Um, and then uh, Joel became a youth pastor and then a senior pastor down in Willamette. And now he's down in Livermore, California. Um, jo- some of you know Joel. Um, some of you know Joy's family. Her parents are uh, Dr. John and Carly Wex. I know some of you know them. And uh, this was actually, this was my first matchmaking effort. And it went so well, it was my last. I decided to end with 100%. Uh, but they are wonderful people. Uh, back in the spring, um, Joel and his family were down in California at Disneyland, and he wasn't feeling well, uh, went to emergency, and uh, the upshot is he found out he had uh, stage four uh, colon cancer. Um, he just turned 50, I think about a month ago, so he's just a kid. And um, back in August, he called me up and he said, you know, I'm gonna be going through a lot of chemotherapy and then I'm gonna have surgery in October, November, and December are gonna be really rough. And he said, is there any way that you could come down? Could you just come down and, and be with us a little bit and maybe preach one weekend in our church and I could take the weekend off? And so we were talking and you know what was so great was I was thinking to myself, uh, I know my church. I know Gateway, I know your heart. I know how much you love, not just one another, but even other churches and believers in other places. And so by the end of the conversation, I told Joel, I said, I think, uh, I think Gateway would like it even better if instead of once, how about if I come down three times? What if I come down once in October, once in November, and once in December? My church will probably be glad to be rid of me and I can be down there and bless your church. And so this is the plan. Next weekend, I'm gonna go down. Um, I'm actually flying in on Saturday. I think I touch ground at 6.30 in the evening. I'll uh, stay with Joel, enjoy that night, get up in the morning, go and preach. And then I have to be uh, at the airport for a 155 flight to come home. I think they did that on purpose so that I can't preach too long. Uh, so anyways, I, I say it um, because... Really, next weekend, uh, you guys are going to bless them. You're going to bless their entire church. And even though you may not know them, we have koinonia. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so when I go down there, at the beginning of the sermon, I'm just going to say, hey, greetings from Gateway, greetings from the people there, kind of like Paul does at the end of his letter. You don't know these people, you never met them, but they love you. And they're praying for your pastor and they're praying for you because we have koinonia, we have fellowship. Uh, So anyways, that's where I'm going to be next weekend. Um, But I want to wrap this up. Let me just uh, read verses 15. Kind of got to be done here. He says this, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, so Paul's plan is, read this letter in your church and then I want you to pass some letters around. 
have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, probably the letter of, of Ephesians, um, and say to Archippus, we don't know who that is, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So we don't know who he is, but he said, God gave you ministry. Here's some good advice. Fulfill that. That's always good advice. Last verse, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Paul says, remember my chains, which appears to be a prayer request. Paul says, I am chained to a prison cell. My body can't leave here. I can't come visit you, but I can still minister to you. I can pray for you. I can write a letter of encouragement to you through the leading of the Holy Spirit. And I can send a couple of dearly beloved brothers to go be with you instead of here with me. And he blesses these people, but he says, don't forget to pray for me. And notice he doesn't say, pray, I get out of here. He just says, remember me. Because even though his body may be chained to a floor in a prison, the gospel is not. And it goes out even through the working of Paul. And then he says, grace be with you. May God's unmerited, freely given favor rest upon you. I thought it would be good for us to close with communion. And so I'm going to invite uh, some of our deacons to go up and grab uh, the elements and we're going to take that together and, and, and be done. But I think when we talk about God's grace, um, communion is a great thing for us to do together. One of the things that we have said a lot in this series is that one of the themes that Paul hammers home in this book is the sufficiency of Christ. That Christ is enough. That he did all the work of salvation. That when he went to the cross and he suffered and he died, on that cross, that he did all the work that is necessary for salvation. Not, not half of the work, not most of the work. He did all of the work. And he offers to us a grace, a, a gift. By definition, grace means you, can, you can't earn it, you can't deserve it, you, you, deserve, you can only receive it. And once you receive it, and we talked about this last week, we have not been saved by works, but we have been saved for the works of God. The guys are going to come forward, and as they do, I want to encourage you, if you have a faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to take a wafer, to take a cup, and to hold on to that for a minute. And I want to talk about, a little bit about this thing that we're going to do. Scripture says that Jesus went to that cross by the predetermined plan of God. Things did not get out of control that day. People were not in charge that day. God was in charge. It was God's plan so that you and I could be forgiven of our sin through the work of Christ that we could be indwelt and sealed by the Holy Spirit and that Christ could be our all in all. That once we are saved by grace through faith, we are new creations. We have been set free to live for Christ. Every moment of every day that we're now free, we're free to do that. The bread and the cup remind us of the means to that end. The bread represents the body of Christ. He says it was broken for you, it was nailed to that cross. The cup reminds us of the blood of Christ that was shed for us. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about this. He said, just when you do this, remember what you're doing. Remember why you're doing this. Don't do this thoughtlessly. I'm going to read this for us, and then in a few minutes, we'll, we'll take the bread and the cup. Paul says this, remember this, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul goes on to say a few more words, and it's probably the reason I love this passage so much in the context of communion. He says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're proclaiming that he's coming again. And whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And that's a whole other sermon there. But let me just say this. He goes on and says this. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So there's a lot of ideas that he's throwing around here. But I think at the very least, Paul's saying, don't take this without being thoughtful. Don't take this without examining your life first. Is there some sin you need to confess? Confess it. Is there something you need to repent of? Repent of that. Is there something you merely need to thank God for because of this? Thank God for that. But be thoughtful. Examine yourself as you do this. So we're going to give you the opportunity to do that. I'm going to give you a few moments here to pray, to talk to the Lord. And uh, uh, Scott's going to come up, and when you're ready, you can take the bread and take the cup, and we will close in a song together. But let me, let me pray for us, and then I'm going to give you a moment to pray and, and take communion when you're ready. Father God, I thank you uh, for the book of Colossians. I thank you for um, just the depth that we could just study this book for years and years and still be learning more and more from it. But I thank you for the time that we've had in it. And I thank you for the closing of the book and how it reminds us that we do not walk through this life as believers alone. That we have been placed into a body. That we have been put into a family. And that we are to walk in that family in an unnatural, in a supernatural way through the power of the Spirit. And we thank you for that today. Father, I pray for us that you would enlarge our hearts. That we would not go down that road where our hearts get smaller, but that they would get larger. That we would love more and more people and minister to more and pray for more and rejoice with more and weep with more that you would grow our hearts. And this morning, Father, as we as we take communion, as we remember the body and remember the blood of Christ, that we will do it with gratefulness, both somberly and, and joyfully, confessing what needs to be confessed, rejoicing in what needs to be rejoiced in. We thank you for the body. We thank you for the blood. We thank you for grace that comes through faith. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say, amen.